you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. In the latter part of the, in the latter part of the 19th century, the state government of Pennsylvania and presumably other states as well began cracking down on the traditional practice of powwow, a mixture of faith healing and folk remedies prevalent among the Pennsylvania Dutch and other traditional German groups. The crackdown was instigated by the medical profession. Powwow doctors were often sought out by country folk with little money or access to traditional medicine. However, there had been quite a few instances of people who were treated in this manner and didn't get better, and several times death had resulted from reliance on what was often seen as magic, rather than on proven methods of healing. In many ways, the attitudes toward powwow seemed to mirror attitudes toward modern-day alternative medicine. Sometimes it might help, but just as often it doesn't, and sometimes it fails spectacularly and people end up dead. But in 1928, another unforeseen consequence of powwow emerged. This is episode 32, Ray Myers Hollow. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Nelson D. Ray Meyer was a big man, a solidly built farming man. He lived alone in a rustic cabin in southern York County, Pennsylvania, not too far from Stewartstown. His plain wooden home had neither telephone, nor electricity, nor indoor plumbing. He was a powwow doctor for the area, and people from surrounding communities often traveled the lonely roads of Ray Meyer's Hollow, the region in which his home sat being named for his family, to seek healing from the reclusive farmer. He had been separated from his wife Alice since 1924. They remained married, though she and their two daughters lived in another house nearby. Alice told investigators later that the separation was due to the endless throngs of strangers who came to their house seeking Nelson's help. It was his belief in all of these witchcraft doctors that finally broke up our home. I simply would not put up with all the people that came to his house. They came here with new things that he was to try, and he made them stay to eat, and often they stayed overnight. At last I could not stand it anymore, so I and my daughters went to live by ourselves, and he stayed here, and although we were still friendly, 
He kept up his business with these men all the time, and they killed him. I don't know all the stuff they told him to do, but he kept powwowing with many of them, but none of them seemed to do him any good. Other local rumors, however, had it that Nelson was having an affair with another neighborhood woman, and that this was the true cause, despite what Alice said. Whatever the case, a farmer named Charles Miller said to him of his powwowing, That crazy stuff is dangerous, and you ought to quit, because it will get you nothing but trouble. How right he was. Adjoining Ray Myers Hollow, there's another region named after a local family, Blymeyer's Hollow. Here, there lived a boy named John Blymeyer. When he was five, he began suffering from a condition called obnema, or takeoff, a wasting condition popularly supposed to result from a curse or a hex, but which likely corresponds to any number of vitamin deficiencies usually caused by malnutrition. Some newspapers from the trial say John was anemic, which would indeed seem to fit the general physical symptoms caused. When you see the words written out, anemia actually somewhat looks like the word for opnema. In any case, he was taken to neighboring Raymire's Hollow to be healed by Nelson. Raymire told Emmanuel Blymire, John's father, to boil an egg in the boy's urine. Then a needle should be used to poke three holes in the eggshell. The egg should then be laid on an anthill, and the boy would be cured of his opnema when the egg was completely devoured by the ants. This cure worked, and by spring, John was cured. By the time he was seven, John Blymeyer began to develop healing powers of his own, inherited it from his grandfather and his father, he so claimed. He began to help Raymire on his farm, and in 1907, when he was only 13, John left home and went to York, taking a job in a cigar factory. Here, one of the more dramatic displays of his magical ability occurred. A mad dog, foaming at the mouth, rushed at a group of factory employees, John among them. Blymire calmly approached the dog, muttered a powwow charm, and made the sign of a cross over the dog's head. Almost immediately, it stopped foaming at the mouth and licked his hand. It was apparently no longer rabid. After this, though, his optimum developed once more. Shortly thereafter, he quit the factory and took various odd jobs for years. He was developing an obsession with the idea that he had once more been hexed. For the next few years, he roamed around, spending virtually all his savings to try to find out from any powwow doctor who could help him who exactly had placed this curse on him. But none could help. One day, he became convinced that he had been cursed by the spirit of his great-grandfather, Jacob, having arrived at this conclusion after hearing an owl hoot seven times at midnight. How exactly that identified the curse layer, I don't know. John sought out more traditionally medical cures for his condition in these early days, before turning exclusively to powwowers. He visited several doctors, undertook what he called electric therapy, and finally went to the York Hospital, where he was diagnosed with hypochondriacal melancholia and nervous exhaustion. He received some treatments at the hospital, but these didn't seem to work very well. He eventually met a girl named Lily Halloway, and the two were married, 
John's symptoms began to abate, and he began to make more money and to work his cures again. But his obsession remained. Both children the couple had died shortly after birth, and this led John to think the hex was returning. By 1920, when he was 26, Blymeyer had gone to upwards of 20 powwow doctors, none of whom could dispel the hex. Among them, Sam Schmuck, Andrew Lenhart, Charles Dice, and a Mrs. Leed. Lenhart told John that he had been hexed by someone very close to him. Blymeyer immediately took this to mean that he had been hexed by his wife Lily, despite the fact that the symptoms of the opnema had far predated his acquaintance with her, and in fact had begun to abate after he met her. She began to fear that John would harm her. As an aside, it's interesting that John's actions developed from what was told to him by Andrew Lenhart. Lenhart was a well-known practitioner who lived on a farm near York. He was apparently often suspected of hexing those who crossed him, and it was said that nobody, not even the devil himself, could remove it. But most relevant to this situation is that Lenhart had embroiled himself in several other cases of spouses killing the other. A woman named Sally Jane Hagee had killed her husband after consulting Lenhart. Shortly before the events at Raymire's Hollow, a Gettysburg woman named Helen Eicher was also convicted of killing her husband, again after consulting Lenhart. Though it's unclear if he was ever investigated for his involvement in these cases, I, I kind of wonder whether he subtly urged the Hexie to take violent action against the Hexer. At any rate, in 1924, an attorney hired by Lily's father persuaded the courts to hold a commitment hearing. John was judged to be borderline psychoneurotic, and on the orders of Judge Fisher of York, he was committed to the state hospital in Harrisburg. But after a month and a half, he simply left the hospital. He wasn't discharged, but during a baseball game being held on the grounds, just walked out. Amazingly, no one seems to have really pursued him for recommitment. Even though soon after this, he, he re-emerged onto the police radar when he managed to swindle a farmer named Walter Keener out of part of his farm. Keener sued and got that, that portion of his land back. John's mental health hadn't improved, which makes it all the more unbelievable that he wasn't pursued by authorities. In fact, it had gotten worse. Lily divorced him, and he had gained a reputation locally as, quote, a nut. Many times, he was seen wandering the streets at night, flapping his arms around. When one of his sisters married, he threatened to put a curse on the serenaders, by which was presumably meant an old Pennsylvania Dutch tradition in which townspeople congregate around the house of newlyweds to wish them well. John returned to his old job at the cigar factory, and here he met John Curry. John was only 14, but he looked older. In fact, he had tried to enlist in the army the year before, and had actually made it, made it as far as basic training before it was discovered that the new recruit was actually only 13. As can be deduced from the fact that he had tried to enlist at such an early age, Curry didn't have a very good childhood. His stepfather was very abusive toward both he and his mother, and as he said, he used to beat the hell out of me whenever he was drinking, and that was just near every day. 
Eventually, he was thrown out of his house. He developed a medical issue of some sort, and John offered to heal him. This he did, and as Curry said, if it had not been for Dr. Blymeyer, I would be dead by this time. Around this time, one of the powwowers that John Blymeyer saw referred him to an old woman living in Marietta whose name was Nellie Knoll, or whose real name was actually Emma Knopp, popularly known as the River Witch. She was an ancient crone, in her 90s at the time of the meeting, and was said to have only one tooth in her head. Mrs. Knoll told John to take a dollar bill from his pocket and place it face up on his hand. After a brief ritual, she claimed that the face on the dollar would gradually change to show John the true face of the one who had placed the hex upon him. Sure enough, after a few moments, the image of someone he knew appeared on his palm. Nelson Raymeyer, his neighbor and distant relative who would heal John when young. The healing had not been a healing at all. Now, John knew who, who had cursed him. Nellie Knoll told him that to lift the curse, he needed to retrieve Nelson's copy of The Long Lost Friend, an oft-used book in powwow. Also known as Der Lange Verbogene Freund in the original German, the book was written in that language in 1820 by John George Homan, a Pennsylvania Dutch immigrant who had settled in Berks County. It wasn't translated into English until 1856. The book was a catalog of some of the more commonly used cures, although not all cures used in powwow came from this volume. At any rate, John was to procure Ray Meyer's copy of this, as well as a clipping of his hair, and bury both eight feet deep. Bly Meyer also visited other farms in the vicinity. One was that belonging to Milton and Alice Hess. The Hess farm had been declining for two years, and this year... 1928. It was doing very badly. Cows no longer gave milk properly, chickens stopped laying eggs, and the harvest was bad. Milton Hess had been engaged in an ongoing dispute with Aaron Hess, a neighbor who was his nephew, and presumed his farm to have been hexed, probably by Aaron's mother, who would have been Milton's sister-in-law. But continuing to see the river witch in Marietta, Meyer learned that John Curry had also been hexed by Raymeyer, as had the Hesses farm. Meyer told Hess this, and so one of Milton's sons, Clayton, agreed to help the two go get the things from Raymeyer. He drove them down in his car down to the hollow. Here the two went to the home of Alice Raymeyer, Nelson's estranged wife. She said that Nelson was a devilish old witch, and that she found him too damn peculiar. She directed them to his cabin, about a mile or so down the road. Blymeyer and Curry went to Raymeyer's house, where they were greeted and shown inside by the six-foot-tall farmer, who by this time was about sixty. Blymeyer and Raymeyer spoke about powwow, with Blymeyer steering the conversation toward the long-lost friend in an attempt to find out where the elder man hid his copy. This failed, though, and soon enough he went back soon enough Raymeyer went back to bed. Blymeyer and Curry briefly searched the house, but couldn't find the book. It had quickly become apparent that the two would need some more help. They could maybe find the book by themselves, but to get some of his hair, they'd have to overpower the man, 
and it seemed unlikely that the slightly built Blymeyer and a 14-year-old boy could get the job done. They told this to Milton Hess, and he sent his son Wilbert to assist. Wilbert Hess was 18 at the time. And so, on the evening of November 27, 1928, Clayton once again drove Blymeyer, Curry, and his brother to Raymeyer's Hollow. Nelson was sleeping at the time they arrived, but told the three he'd be down in a moment when they started pounding on the kitchen door. Once inside, Blymeyer feigned that he had lost his copy of The Long Lost Friend and that he needed to borrow Raymeyer's. They searched around the house a bit, Raymeyer seeming not too sure where it was. Either he was a disorganized person, or he had some sense that Blymeyer was up to no good. Then, as Wilbert Hess said in an article from the Philadelphia Inquirer, which ran on December 1st, 1928, describing the chaotic scene, I grabbed Raymeyer, and Kerr grabbed him too. And then the three of us took hold of Raymeyer and threw him on the floor. Blymeyer said we must tie his legs to cut his hair. When we had him on the floor, I told Curry to tie his legs so that we could cut his hair. Raymeyer said, what are you going to do with me? Blymeyer said he should just be quiet, that we wanted to do something or get something. Raymeyer then tried to get up and hollered a little bit. Then Raymeyer had just about got up and we put him down again, and Blymeyer had a piece of wood and was hitting Raymeyer over the head. Then Curry kicked Raymeyer with his feet, and then Blymeyer reached over and got a piece of wood and told me to hit Raymeyer. I hit him once or twice over the left ear and on the side of his head. Then Blymeyer hit him on the head with a chair and broke the chair. I saw pieces of wood, and I think it was from the chair Blymeyer hit Raymeyer with. Blymeyer said, Give me your money. Curry, however, stated that it was Blymeyer who jumped him and pinned both his arms about him. Then he threw Raymeyer on the floor. His statement makes, makes no reference to either he or Hess taking part in the attack. Blymeyer's statement is vague about exactly what took place. What is known is that for some length of time, the three continued beating and kicking Raymeyer and finally strangled him with a piece of rope. Water was then splashed about in an effort to cover up fingerprints, although Curry later said that he and Blymeyer wore gloves, so only Hess could have been connected to the crime via fingerprint evidence anyway. And then Nelson Raymeyer was doused in lamp oil and set on fire. At some point, the fire went out. On Thanksgiving Day, November 29th, a neighbor named David Vanover in the company of another man named Oscar Gladfelder, heard a mule of Nelson's making a lot of noise and went to see what the matter was. Approaching the wooden house, he noticed that the outer walls of the house were discolored as if burned, and the porch overhang was severely damaged. Drawing closer, he noticed the smell of death, and so it was that the body of Nelson Raymeyer was found. Far from criminal masterminds, the three were in police custody only hours after the body was discovered. Once the authorities talked to Alice Raymeyer, she told them of the visit by Blymeyer and Curry on November 26th, and it was then an easy matter to connect these visitors to Nelson's murder the next day. And after they were both picked up, Wilbert Hess's involvement was soon brought to light as well. 
A December 4th article in the Harrisburg Evening News summarized the conduct of Blymeyer while in police custody. Blymeyer is tranquil. His mind is at rest and he can sleep, he says, because the hex, which he says Raymeyer had put on him, was broken with Raymeyer's death. Blymeyer failed to obtain the lock of Raymeyer's hair, which he wanted as a charm to break the hex, because the hair was bloody. But the death of Raymeyer has had the desired effect. Prosecuting the case would be District Attorney Amos W. Herman, who, it turned out, was the same lawyer who had represented Walter Keener four years before, and so who had prior experience on the prosecuting end of a case involving John Blymeyer. Just before the trial began, Herbert Cohen, Blymeyer's attorney, filed a, a petition to get his client tried separately, since he was seeking an insanity defense. Upon the arrests of the three, a media frenzy began to take shape, with York County being cast as an area rather similar to H.P. Lovecraft's backwater town of Dunwich, primitive and in the thrall of what was by newspapers called voodoo. Judge Sherwood, presiding over the case, sought to remedy the situation somewhat by admitting only a small group of five journalists to the courtroom to cover the proceedings. The media, in turn, called the whole affair only a step above the star chamber, referring to the secretive royal council in England. District Attorney Herman sought to limit what he saw as sensationalistic references to witchcraft and voodoo in the press by casting the murder as a simple robbery gone wrong. As was written in a 1930 summary by Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice Robert von Moschzisker, Although the alleged purpose of the visit was to get some of Raymeyer's hair and the book on witchcraft, Appellee concedes in his brief, no effort was made to, to obtain the lock of hair, and no particular search was made for the book. However, defendant and his confederates did take their victim's money. In short, the evidence would sustain a verdict of willful, deliberate, and premeditated killing and would fully warrant a finding that Raymeyer was brutally murdered during the case of a robbery and in the perpetration of an arson. However, Herman's efforts were successful only in part. The various attorneys for the three defendants still brought up the issue of witchcraft to varying degrees. There was also another matter brought up in the press, though to the best of my knowledge, not in the trials themselves. A year before Raymeyer was slain, on November 11, 1927, the body of a 16-year-old girl, who it was later discovered had been pregnant, named Gertrude Rudy, was found lying on railroad tracks on the border of York County and Maryland. She had been shot with a shotgun and bludgeoned, presumably with a stock of the weapon. It was determined that she had been killed elsewhere and then driven in a car to the railroad tracks in an attempt to destroy the body. It also eventually came to light that she had been visiting a powwow doctor. The powwow doctor that she had been seeing later turned out to be a co-worker named John Blymeyer, the same John Blymeyer on trial for the murder of Raymeyer. There was predictably an attempt to link him to, to Rudy's murder as well, and though Blymeyer insisted that he couldn't drive, his landlord's son said that he had rented a car that night and he hadn't returned till 3 a.m. But the case against him was circumstantial to say the least, 
and any link was no longer pursued by authorities. A detailed examination of the minutiae of the three trials is unnecessary. But suffice it to say that three gave more or less consistent testimony, differing only in the particulars of what happened once Raymire had actually been attacked. For his part, Blymire claimed that Curry had strangled Raymire and Hess was the one who set him on to set him on fire. Curry, he said, was also the one who thought of wearing gloves and of trying to use water to clean up any fingerprint evidence that might have been left behind. Curry claimed that it was Blymire who had done mostly everything, and Hess intimated that Blymire and Curry probably shared equal amounts of the blame. When the week-long trial concluded, it appeared the jurors were most influenced by Wilbert Hess's testimony. John Blymire and John Curry were both charged with first-degree murder and given life sentences, and Wilbert Hess was charged with second-degree murder and given ten years. As it all panned out, however, Curry and Hess were both released in 1939. Hess had served his complete sentence, returned to his family farm, and worked as an electrician before dying in 1978. Curry enlisted in the military, legitimately this time, and in fact helped draft the maps used in the planning of the D-Day invasion in 1944. He died in 1963. Blymire who, it seemed, was generally agreed upon as being the mastermind of the affair, served time in Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, with his sentence being commuted in 1953. He was a night watchman in an apartment building in that city, and after he retired, he became a recluse and died, relatively unnoticed, in 1972. The story of Ray Meyer's Hollow, or Hex Hollow as it is often called, is a famous story in York County, and thanks to the recent mentions in books, podcasts, and documentaries, is known even outside of Pennsylvania. It also inspired any number of urban legends, which in traditional urban legend fashion have a number of variations. The stories sometimes state that Raymire was the murderer, that he was a Satanist, that he committed blood sacrifices in his house, and that somewhere within the woods, there is, a, there is a mystic stone circle, which, if circled seven times counterclockwise, either opens a gateway to hell or summons a pack, of, a pack of spectral hounds. Similar stories also exist at the tiny Hans Graf Cemetery near Marietta. There also seems to be a fair degree of confusion with another York County legend, that of the Seven Gates of Hell. In fact, some variants of that story have it that Nelson Raymire lived near where the gates are supposed to be, rather than the complete other end of the county. One bizarre event which came to light during the trial, and which plays into some of the modern legends, the hollow being a favored haunt of ghosts, with both the house itself and the surrounding woods being infested with specters, was first mentioned by John Blymire. The following took place after they had killed Raymire and were leaving the house. When we got to the barn, we looked back and I said, there's something standing in the road. They said it was a shadow of something. It started as though it backed up into the road. Then we all started to run as hard as we could over the hill. This tale was also confirmed in the testimony of John Curry, who at the same point in his story said, 
that Blymeyer came to the conclusion that the house wasn't burning. He said, let's go back. So we went back, and when we got to the barn, Blymeyer and Hess thought they saw somebody in the road. Though Wilbert Hess was said to have also seen the ghostly apparition, he didn't appear to have mentioned it. One wonders whether the phantom seen that night in November 1928 was the same one that haunted Raymire's Hollow in the years past. In his book Beyond the Seventh Gate, Tim Renner of the, of the Strange Familiars podcast mentions that a fiery form was seen there in the 1890s when it was known as Raymire's Valley. In 1891, the papers had it that the ghost at the lower end of this place has made its appearance again. Several of our people have become so afraid that they will not travel through that place at night on account of the spook. The next year, it is again said that the spook made his appearance again last night in his fiery suit. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew... Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.